Let us begin our Monday Thursday sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, as we celebrate your institution of Holy Communion, we ask you to work through the words of today's sermon that we may understand how gloriously you nourish us in this meal and how simple you have made it for our understanding. Let us not go astray in understanding the wonderful blessings you provide for us in Holy Communion, but let us receive them with the childlike faith that believes your words of institution and clings to them as your unchangeable promise. Amen. Our text for our sermon is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-29. through 29. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the Lord's body and blood. Instead, let a person examine himself, and after doing so, let him eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks in an unworthy way because he does not recognize the Lord's body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is the word of our Lord. Imagine that you needed brake work done on your automobile, and a friend of yours says, I've piddled with brakes before. Bring it over to my house, park it in my garage. I'll fix those for you and save you a lot of money. And then when he's done and you're driving the car home, as the car in front of you slams on the brakes and you go to slam on yours, you find out the meaning of this proverb, he knows just enough to be dangerous. Imagine you've hired a friend of yours who has said the same thing. I've done carpeting in my house before and let me do this. I'll save you a lot of money. And so you let them do that. And right after they leave, you start to head down your steps and they didn't understand the safety of anchoring down the carpet. And you tumble down, breaking your back, and have to lay there for hours waiting for another family member to come home and call an ambulance. A person can think they know how to do something, but not know enough to even know what they don't know, and hence, know just enough to be dangerous. Why do I talk about knowing just enough to be dangerous? Did you catch the warning that sadly many people who think they know about the Lord's Supper miss? Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the Lord's body and blood. Again, we're told in verse 29, For if anyone eats and drinks in an unworthy way because he does not recognize the Lord's body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. You don't have to be a seminary professor to understand the simple words that the Apostle Paul says here or Jesus says in the Gospels as the words of institution are recorded for us. In fact, it actually takes a childlike faith. You'll find many, though, who sadly just refuse to understand these words with the childlike faith. They may be seminary professors. They may be a new convert to Christianity. In either case, they may know just enough to be dangerous. During our Lent season, we've covered ironies in the Passion, and today we will cover ironies in the Lord's Supper. And the very first irony we want to cover so that we end up understanding this with the childlike faith and not know just enough to be dangerous is stated for us in verse 25. In the same way, after the meal, he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Now, 
The Greek word that we translate as testament in secular Greek usage at the time was the word they used for a last will and testament. Now, imagine that your uncle were to pass away and he says, I leave to you my collection of watches and you were to tell the attorney, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's leave the word watches there, but let's add and car. That's not legally binding, is it? That's changing a legally binding document. Now, that Greek word that is used is also the one when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, which is often what, for example, the Apostle Paul quotes when he quotes the Old Testament using the New Testament Greek. That was the word they chose for covenant. So this word means a last will and testament, and it also means a covenant. This reminds us of the old covenant that was made on Mount Sinai. God brought the people to the mountain. He said, you have to follow all of these rules and regulations, and in return, you will be a nation that shines with my holiness, and I will protect you. I will keep foreign invaders from you. And the people said it's a deal. Now, imagine if you could be a fly on the wall on the night in which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He knows Judas is going to betray him. And he knows in the morning those Roman soldiers, after they crucify him, are going to cast lots to divide up all the property he owns, literally the clothes on his back. The believers are his bride. He's going to the cross to purchase and win them to be his bride, which is the church. He wants to leave something behind, and the only thing he has is his body. And so his last will and testament for his bride, the church of which you are a member, is his body and his blood. We dare not change the legally binding last will and testament as people have done and make this say, this becomes my body and blood as if it ceases to be bread and wine, nor dare we change it to say what so many have done and add the word, this represents my body and blood and divest it of what is actually given to us. Why is that important? Because as I already said, that word is not just for a last will and testament, but it's for a covenant the new covenant. You see, in the old covenant, you went to the temple regularly. You regularly had an animal killed for your sins, an animal that had not committed your sins. Life was given in your place. The wages of sin is death. Christ gives us his body. That's a once and for all sacrifice for the cross. The new covenant is Christ's body on the cross, and then that body raising from the tomb. Christ shed his blood on the cross. In his last will and testament, he gives you his blood. Life is in the blood. The animal's blood was shed to remind people that the wages of sin is death, but Christ gave his life, gave you his blood to wash your sins away that he could give you new life. The new covenant is not about a nation following external laws. It is about God doing all the work for salvation and giving it to you as a free gift. And so, there's an irony here 
when people want to change the words to this becomes, which means there's no longer bread and wine with it. It ruins the meal. It ruins the Passover meal and the connection and everything else. But especially when they want to change it to this represents, then they ruin the covenant. There's ironies in the Lord's Supper. Irony that it's the last will and testament, yet when people change the words, they break the covenant. Just as the Old Testament people broke the covenant and ruined what they had. The ultimate sad thing here is, if they want to change the words, they break the covenant and rob themselves of the covenant. So we don't want to change the words. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. The way he states that, there's bread there, and somehow we receive the body, there's wine there, and somehow we receive the blood. And so we see there's an irony. Irony that this is the last will and testament. You receive the body that was given to put you in his church, the blood that was given in place of your life to wash you clean and give you holiness, puts you in the new covenant. Now, with the last will and testament, we have to remember this was given in connection with the meal. But there's an irony when it comes to this meal. This is a meal that's for godly hunger. But people turn this into worldly hunger. What do I mean? When the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian congregation, he has to straighten out a major misunderstanding they have. In chapter 11, verses 17 through 22, he says, Now in giving you this next command, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, I hear that when you come together in an assembly, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. For there also has to be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So when you come together in the same place, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you eat, each one goes ahead and takes his own supper. So one person goes hungry while another is drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise God's church and humiliate those who have nothing? What am I to say to you? Shall I praise you? In this matter, I do not praise you. We have to remember that for the Corinthian congregation, as most congregations in the Roman Empire, the average member was a slave. The middle class was a very small group of people, and then there was an upper class. We know in early church history that many congregations celebrated the Lord's Supper and then launched into a sermon. And it appears here what was going on is they had a potluck as they came together. And during that potluck, they celebrated the Lord's Supper and then launched into worship. However, if you're a slave, what are you going to bring to the potluck? Nothing. So... The people who brought stuff were being greedy and they were drinking too much wine. There's something wrong when you come to worship the Lord and you end up drunk as you launch into the worship service. The people here were not looking out for each other, were they? They took what was a regular meal and it would have been fine if they celebrated the Lord's Supper while celebrating that regular meal, but they just made it a feast of gluttony, didn't they? We can do that with the Lord's Supper as well, because this is a meal that's meant for godly hunger. It's soul food. It's meant to nourish your soul. But people can turn it into worldly hunger, into a meal that's only about worldly, earthly, mundane things. This happens today, not because our church has potlucks, 
This often happens when somebody shows up to a congregation as a visitor, and the person who's going to be distributing the Lord's Supper does not know them. He doesn't know if they've examined themselves, and if they have not examined themselves, by giving them the Lord's Supper, he may be participating in their eating and drinking judgment on themselves. People show up to church, they know there's a Lord's Supper going on, and they get mad when they're told, I'm sorry, but I don't know you, and I don't feel like I can give this. And lots of times that happens because they show up at the last minute, and then they storm out. See, this meal, the point I want to get at is, this was meant to be a communal meal in which not only do you receive the soul food, the body and blood of Christ, but you receive it with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It would seem wrong if you were to take bread and wine all by yourself and institute it for yourself and then give it to yourself. Christ gave it to the disciples. He gave it to his bride as a meal that unites them with him as soul food and as a meal that unites us together as soul food. And if we want to take and look at our individual rights and demand that we not be left out or demand that we have the right for it, and sadly so many times we can celebrate this in a blasphemous way by saying this is just an opportunity to share some graham crackers and a little Kool-Aid then we take what is meant to be a meal that nourishes our soul and we turn it into a meal about worldly things. Another irony that comes with this is that it actually defies worldly wisdom that this is my body, this is my blood. In the beginning of this epistle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, the Lord's Supper here ironically gives God's wisdom, yet it gets twisted into worldly wisdom. The reason why people change as they did in the medieval ages the word to this becomes is because they're trying to grasp it with worldly wisdom. You can see that it's bread and wine and present, but they didn't want bread and wine to be present. To make it understandable for them, it had to only be Christ's body and blood. And during the Reformation, people came along who, they saw this is bread, this tastes like bread, this is wine, this tastes like wine. And so they said, how could Christ's body and blood be present in or with the bread and wine? And so they added that word. They changed the last will and testament by saying, he, what Jesus meant to say is this represents my body. This represents my blood. I'm going to tell you that the Lord's Supper, the bread and wine being present with the body and blood of the Lord defies science. The scientific method will never prove or disprove this. It's a spiritual thing and it's a miracle of the Lord. This is meant to give you godly wisdom. It is meant to nourish a childlike faith that says, Lord, you say so, therefore it must be. How you can do the miracle? It's because you're God, and I'll leave it at that. And so we see people often twist this by worldly wisdom, wanting to make sense with it in a worldly way, they'll add and take it away. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me in verse 4. And in verse 5, after instituting the wine, he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This actually, if we look at the Greek language, has the preposition. You often hear me say we have to pay attention to the Greek prepositions. It has that preposition ice, which is a goal. When you take the Lord's Supper, it's not only the purpose to remember the Lord, it's also the goal 
that is received. Literally getting the body and blood of the Lord puts in your stomach, shall we say, that Christ's body and blood was given for you and he's purchased and won you. It's not just you saying, look, Lord, I remember you. It's actually God's body and blood empowering you and giving you the remembrance, even though it happened 2,000 years ago, of his being on the cross. This is one of the things that makes it soul food. It reminds us that body and blood was for my forgiveness, so it gives you that forgiveness. But we change it with worldly wisdom, don't we? Well-meaning Christians, and I don't mean to insult them, take a look at this. And Like somebody in Vietnam who had a friend who jumped in front of a bullet for them and died. And so they go to the war memorial wall and they put their hand on their friend's name and they say, I remember you, your sacrifice was not in vain. We change Christ's words here to a worldly remembrance to that. And again, I don't want to take that away, but it's more than that you actually get the body and blood that actually gives you the remembrance because it actually gives you the forgiveness. It is soul food. It is God's wisdom and it nourishes you. Jesus tells us in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and if we translate the Greek word there literally, it is you are thoroughly proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes because you are getting the last will and testament, his body and his blood. And so, this simply boils down to godly wisdom is the theology of the cross. You and I can't save ourselves. Christ did it for us. Christ bore the hardship of the world. But it can quickly be twisted into a theology of glory. Look, Lord, I'm proclaiming your death. Look at what a good disciple I am. Look, Lord, I'm earning forgiveness. That's what it had become in, in the medieval ages. Look, Lord, I'm earning forgiveness. And again, sadly... That's not what this is meant to do. It's irony because it gives godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is foolishness to the Gentiles. It's the childlike faith that says, Lord, you say so, and therefore it must be. And in a miraculous way that we don't understand, but God does, he gives you his body and blood and actually strengthens that childlike faith because with that body and blood, he gives you the remembrance of him on the cross and off the cross. He gives you that strong proclamation that he died for you. If you had somebody work on your brakes and they knew just enough to be dangerous, you could end up in a horrible car accident. The Lord's Supper does not require the knowledge of a seminary professor. It actually requires a childlike faith to say, Lord, as a last will and testament, you give me your body and blood and you say so. And when God gives us that childlike faith, the Lord's Supper actually strengthens us. The sad thing is, if we don't have the childlike faith, if we don't believe Christ's body and blood are there, if we don't understand it, then we're driving that car that a person who knew just enough to be dangerous had worked on the brakes for us. It can drag us straight into hell, as we were warned in verse 27 and verse 29. But on the other hand, as the rest of the verse show us, when we have the childlike faith, this is soul food. It strengthens our faith. It nourishes our faith. It gives us the ability to proclaim. It gives us the miracle. It lets us have the forgiveness of sins besides just hearing it and reading it and proclaiming it, and we get to eat it. And so we see irony in the Lord's Supper. Irony that it's a last will and testament, yet people change the words and break the covenant. However, on the same hand, God strengthens you using this in his new covenant. Irony that it's for godly hunger, but people turn it into a worldly hunger, into a selfishness, into a self-proclamation, and yet 
God turns around and he satisfies your godly hunger as he nourishes your faith in a miraculous way through it. It's an irony that it gives godly wisdom yet is twisted by worldly wisdom. However, once again, when we come with that childlike faith to it, God turns around and nourishes us with his wisdom to strengthen and keep us in the childlike faith that he has given us. Amen. And now you are blessed because you are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Amen. Because of good stewardship in social distancing to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, we were once again unable to gather on Monday, Thursday. However, let us conclude everything using the prayer that we would have used in our Monday, Thursday worship service. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, author of the everlasting covenant and giver of the cup of salvation, we gather in your courts to offer you our sacrifice of thanksgiving. For fulfilling your promise to establish a new covenant through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, we give you humble and hearty thanks. As our Lord Jesus Christ gave thanks to you when he broke the bread, as he gave thanks to you when he took the cup, we also give you thanks. Precious Savior, priest and offering, awe and wonder fill our hearts as we partake of your body offered for us and your blood shed for us. We praise you, bless you, and adore you, Lord Jesus Christ. In our poverty of righteousness, we have nothing to offer. Without your tremendous sacrifice, we would still be in our sins. But through your sacrament of the New Testament, we are assured that our iniquities are forgiven and our sins are no longer remembered. O Holy Spirit, dwell within us as we remember our Lord's death in this sacrament. Enter our hearts to strengthen our faith and fill us with gratitude for your great mercy. Move us to encourage one another to love and to do good works. Hear us, Lord, as we bring you our private petitions. As our Lord served his disciples by washing their feet, so may we also humbly serve one another. Help us live our lives as sacrifices of thanksgiving to him who first loved us. Amen.